Welcome to the Ravens Nevermind, a conversation about movies, books, music, even TV, anything that will entertain you. I'm Kim. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about Jim Henson. Yes, a the creator of The Muppets, Sesame Street, Fraggle Rock, which has actually started to make a revival on Disney+. Plus. Um, if you've never watched the original of that, Definitely go back and watch it before you watch the revival. You'll de- you'll get a better sense of what that show is about. And I think everybody my age grew up with Sesame Street, Big Bird, Ernie and Bert, Oscar the Grouch. I'm sure your kids watched Sesame Street, right? Yeah, um, you're right. There's uh, if you're not familiar with any of those shows. Um, you've either been living under a rock or you may not have any kids or um, whatever. But yeah, Jim Henson and and the shows he created have uh, been around for decades. Yeah, literally. Um, And if you don't know who Kermit the Frog is, um, is this little green guy. He was originally made out of Jim Henson's mother's... uh, Wool Coat, the original uh, Kermit the Frog, if you want to see him. He's in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. He's worth a lot of money to everybody in the world. And um, if you've never watched The Muppet Show again, I'm sure the theme song is running through my head at the moment. I can't sing it because I'm sure there's royalties everywhere. Disney, who owns The Muppets right now would probably hunt me down and say, hey, you owe us money. No, yeah, I don't. Go watch those two. But today, actually, we're going to focus on uh, two movies that Disney do not own. The Jim Henson Entertainment Group own these two. The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Labyrinth being my favorite movie of all time. I have great memories of when I watched first watched it, where I've watched it, and actually, I've seen that movie the most, I'm going to say roughly, rough estimate, a hundred times. I know the dialogue to it, every song, and a lot of, I guess you would say, useless facts about it, but we're going to start, before we jump into that one, The Dark Crystal, an original story written by Jim Henson, he co-directed it with Frank Oz, and Frank Oz would be Yoda. If you've ever watched any of these Star Wars movies, you know the little green thing. He voiced Yoda, and he was the puppeteer for the puppet for uh, six, no, that would be four movies that was actually the puppet was in. Yeah, it was in the original three, and he was in the... Last Jedi. But he voiced the character through all of the movies. No, he was a puppeteer for in um, the first uh, ep- uh, Phantom Menace, episode yeah. one. Yeah. The ugly puppet that I, no. <laughs> no. Um, it is, based, Darker Histol is a story about a uh, different world. With creatures that do not, you would never see in our world. Everything is alive. 
trees can actually walk. And there are these two groups of beings, the mystics and the skexies. At one point in time, they were one being. And they came to the planet, called. it's called Thra. And that's what I'm going to uh, call it because that's what it's called. They came to that planet because they saw this energy source, the crystal of truth. And they were like, we, we, need, we can gain so much knowledge from this crystal. So they came there and they met all of the creatures and the denizens of the world. But then there came a point where they became arrogant and they split apart and became two new beings. Another good and evil kind of side to it. And they, I don't, I'm trying to remember if, because in the original movie, they only mention it. They never, until the very, very end of the movie that they actually at one time were one being. You see it all through the movie because if one side, one being of the pair was hurt, you would see the same, on the opposite side, that pair, that creature would be hurt. But you never see that. And to, and when they split the Skeksis, the evil group, they started to bleed the world dry. They enslaved some of the creatures they were manipulating the energy of the world until it was barren and basically no life to it the good side the mystics they became monks and went off into their own little corner of the world but they made a prophecy saying that one day Gelflings, which would be our human equivalent to, in the movie, that's who we would look to and say, yeah, I am a Gelfling. That is the most human of all the creatures there. Um, they, there was a prophecy saying that a Gelfling could heal the planet and bring the two together. So the Skeksis wiped out basically all of that, all of the Gelfling, so this prophecy could never come to pass and they could always rule this poor desolate planet. And the mystics could not care less. They stayed in this valley, they, they prayed, they meditated, they communed with their own little corner of the world and did nothing except for harboring one Gelfling that they kept safe and never told him, hey, you know what, one day you're going to be the savior of this world. What, do you, what would you say to somebody if they came up to you, John, and said, hey, you know what, you have to go on this arduous journey and you're the only one who can save the planet. What would you say? Yeah, that would come as a, a little bit of a shock. Um, and I think you would need a, a, a little bit of convincing to, um, 
actually start putting your foot forward and taking uh, taking that journey to make the thing happen. Yeah, I would be like, um, I don't understand. And I'm not doing that. I don't, I don't like this. Well, that's basically the story of the hero's journey of this Gelfling going through the world, meeting all of these different little creatures, finding out that he, in fact, is not the only Gelfling left, that he there's a girl, and she joins him on this journey. And the funniest, the I think the neatest thing that I always thought when I was little about it is that Kira, the girl, has wings. Only females of this species can fly. <laughs> and she even said, he's like, he says to her, you have wings. And she's like, yeah, he's like, I don't have wings. She says, of course not. You're a boy. Which I thought, as a girl, when I was little, I was like, ha, ha, ha. I can fly and you can't. This movie was made in 1982. So I personally was five years old when I saw this movie in the theater. Years later, I told my mother, I said, that movie scared the living crap out of me. And she goes, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, really? <laughs> I didn't understand at the time that everything there, there was not one human on screen. They were all puppets. Every one of them. And some of them actually, instead of just having one person controlling that puppet, <coughs> there were two. And it's just, if you can find, they there are three different documentaries on how all of those puppets were created from conceptual art to actually watching them being puppeteered. I guess that's a word. It puppeteer? is. Puppeteered? Yep. It doesn't sound right. I don't know why. Weird. They are so interesting. I'm a huge fan of behind-the-scenes things that I love to see. It does not ever... I don't lose the magic of the story when I can see, oh, yeah, there's two people in that... Co it's a costume. Well, and that's the thing I don't think a lot of people realize is, is being a puppeteer, and especially with... Um, some of the puppets that, that Jim Henson designed and stuff, um, they're pretty elaborate, especially to get the movement out of it that they got out of them. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, I think it would be interesting to see, um, take what they were doing back then and seeing how, uh, how much time and how much work and how much effort they had to do into the special effects and the characters uh, the special characters like this in a world where there's no humans and then think about what you're seeing on, on the screen today and how much of this they no longer have to build real world models except maybe as a storyboard but now they have transferred everything over into the digital realm with CGI and so even though you still have a lot of building and a lot of um, um, operation um, you um, it, it, it still does, even if you saw them do it, it wouldn't affect the magic of what you see as a finished product. Well, even then, Henson himself was a pioneer of technology in any shape. He actually used green screens at the time and tried to use 
the technology of the day. He was not ever going to get rid of the practical, of course, because you're a puppeteer, you need a puppet. Even a CGI character is not a puppet. In uh, one of the characters, the um, his name, they just call him the Chamberlain. He does have a name. There are white uh, young adult books about this um, world, and they do have many names. You know, they are hard to pronounce, but they do have a name. The Chamberlain, his head actually has animatronics in it to get make him he can smile he can sneer but the puppeteer himself does not do that that's an actual that's another person off screen that's controlling that yeah it's amazing how much um how much effort goes into bringing some of these stories to life with um the different things that they use and especially when it comes like you're saying to the puppets and stuff like that and uh, the the number of people and the number of uh, parts that you actually need uh, to work together to make it happen. Well, a really good example of that is if you did you watch The Mandalorian on I Disney did. Plus? I did. Well, Baby Yoda. Well, his name's not Baby Yoda. It's Grogu. Sorry if you didn't watch it, but that's what it is. That puppet, because he is a puppet was five different people. Two of them controlled the physical puppet themselves, and the other ones were off-screen with animatronics that controlled his eye, his eye movement, his ears, his mouth, all of that. And you never see any of that. You know, it, And it's just amazing to see this little creature move that five people actually had to act, make this creature come to life in a very amazing way. No, it, it is amazing um, with with the amount of effort that goes into this and you don't realize it. Yeah. Well, um, the story of the Dark Crystal, the hero's journey, in the end, he does heal the Dark Crystal. He does uh, bring the mystics and the sketches together into one being, and he does heal the planet. Uh, definitely go watch the movie. Well, Netflix actually took the YA books and adapted them into a series called Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. And this is before the sketches killed off all of the Gatlings. So you actually get to see the society that these uh, creatures created that were there, that they are very complex characters, seven different clans, and it is actually all puppets still. Now, yes, they did use um, CG for some of the scenes because puppets are limited. They can't run around and jump off uh, trees and things like that very convincingly, still as a puppet. You can have a little person wear a costume that looks like the character, but you can still, you don't really get the same effect as the puppet. But it was, in my opinion, amazing. 
to see that whole world that Henson created that he actually did want to put on screen in real life. Netflix will not, is not going to make a se- second season, which I really, really would love to see, but they're not going to make it. So go see the mo- go see the movie, or you can buy it. It's streaming right now on Netflix. So is Age of Resistance. Um, so go watch those, and you can see the evolution of the puppetry, what has stayed the same, the world building, how much goes into all of that. Watch the documentaries. <laughs> You'll definitely get a good sense of that world. What do you think so far, John? I think um, I, I've always been impressed with what um, uh, Jim Henson and his company have, have done as far as their creativity and what they've been able to do. It. I have seen uh, both of these movies. Uh, it's been some time. Um, oh, God, probably a couple decades. But um, I, I thought for their time... They were very, very amazing what they were able to pull off with it. And I've always enjoyed, I've always enjoyed um, seeing what people can do um, with their talent and their, and their creativity. And that's the thing, um, you know, and that, that's carried on over the years because I, I think a lot of times when people see movies and stuff, they'll... Uh, They'll ask, you know, their comments arise, oh, the special effects were great, the special effects were this. Well, to me, it's kind of like, do the special effects move the story along? Are they part of the story? Or are they just there to, um, you know, have some sort of pizzazz that means nothing to it? In the Henson movies, it's, it's, it's definitely an integrated part. Well, yeah. And now we're going to move up to my favorite movie, Labyrinth. Now... Yeah, um, you can make all the jokes you want about uh, David Bowie's, uh, how tight his pants are in this movie. I'm, if, if you see pictures of it, you know what I mean. But um, it was released in 1986. And in unlike uh, Dark Crystal, there are human beings in it. It's the story is there's this girl she's um, I'd say the character Sarah is about 14 years old she's right on that uh, age where she's becoming a woman she wants to be treated like an adult but she's still a child in some ways she still wants to be able to play and make uh, pretend and she's reading a actual book called Labyrinth. And she loves to act out the scenes to it. Well, she has a half-brother who is a baby. And he's like, everybody's paying attention to him because he's a baby. And she's a little jealous. And she's always upset that she can't have a social life because she has to babysit him. And that's where the movie actually starts out. She's out acting out a scene from her book in the park and she has to run home because she has to babysit her little brother again. 
and she gets into a little fight with her stepmother. How, why do I have to babysit him? I have a life. And this isn't fair. That's a very recurring saying she says in the movie. That's not fair. And she finally, she's watching the baby and he's crying and everything. And she's acting out the, her favorite scene in the book. And she just like can't stand it anymore. So she goes into his bedroom and is trying to uh, quiet him down and says, you know what? I'm going to wish you away to the Goblin King and he's going to make my life so much better and I won't be able to, I won't have to babysit you anymore and I can do whatever I want. Well, she does make that wish. She said, I wish the goblins would come and take you away. And they do. I would be kind of freaked out. It's like, wait a second. I'm just... I'm just play acting, and now I said this, and he's gone? What the? This doesn't make any sense. So, enter in the Goblin King, who is played by the amazing, the very talented, the late and great David Bowie. And he tells her... And she's like, I, I need him back. I need my little brother back. I, 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 I can't do this. I need him back. And she's like, uh, too late. You, you can have him back. But I get you in return. You can come and be my queen in the Goblin Kingdom. That's all you have to do. And she's like, no, I can't do that. I just need my brother back. So now... We go on her hero journey because he tells her, okay, see, in the middle of this big old maze, you got to get there in 13 hours. <laughs> are you over there, like, snoring or are you just laughing? No, 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 no. I'm paying attention to the story. <laughs> yeah. She has to make her way through this huge maze to the center to save her little brother. And along the way, she meets a bunch of different characters who help slash hinder her journey on the way because they all work for the Goblin King because he doesn't, the king doesn't want her to get to the center. He wants to have it all. He wants to have the baby to make him into his heir, so to speak. But he also wants her to be his counterpoint or his queen at the center. So he's sending out all these little minions who in the end are all her friends and help her out. And all of these little friends are puppets. And they're song and they're singing in it. <laughs> Which yeah, some of the songs are a little campy, but this movie has become a cult classic because in the end, she does save her little brother and she learns I can do this. This creature, this uh, creation of mine really has no power over me. And she wins. And I was, the first time I saw it, I was 13. And that whole storyline was like, wow, I'm Sarah. 
I can do this. Yeah, it's creepy that this, I don't even know how old David Bowie was at the time. It's like this older man is, I can beat him. Now, watching it as an adult, I'm like a little creepy. This girl's 14 years old and you're, what, in your 30s? Yeah, that, uh, that's what I would guess at that time, yeah. probably in his 30s. Yeah, but you know, that's um, different different time, different era. Um, and it probably wasn't totally as creepy then, but... Uh, uh, yeah, n- nonetheless, you know, maybe it, maybe it was more of a uh, era parent. Yeah, a parent. Yeah. Uh, the again, like the uh, Grogu puppet. There's a puppet in this movie. His name, the character's name is Hoggle. He is portrayed by five people. One of them is a little person in the costume, but his whole head. Is just the puppet. And the only way the actress who played, you know, the little person, the only way she could see walking around is they had to have his mouth open just enough that she could peek out. Because she didn't have any eye holes in that. She couldn't see out. But I'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> can, I, can I do it, Captain? Can I do it? As a Star Trek reference, if you actually want to know. <laughs> But the amazing thing, like, he used, uh, well, not green screen, but an equivalent. They shot it. The background was black velvet. And then they put the uh, background scene by a computer into it, which is the fire gang. And these fiery creatures can take their heads off and... They basically can take all their body parts off and, like, say, hey, I want to put my hand on my foot. They just pop it off and put it on their foot. They can change, okay, hey, I want to wear your head today. So they exchange body parts. But the puppeteers, there's three people controlling one puppet. One's the head, one's the arms, and one's the legs. So they have to be so coordinated. And they're singing all at the same time. Like, how talented? Not fair. I want to be that talented. No, you're right. I mean, to pull something like that off just with the coordination. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing that we don't see a lot is is the preparation that goes into it, the practice that goes into it. Because it's not just you create the puppet, you put the people in, you give them the controls, and poof, the magic happens. Um, it's pretty much one of those things where, you know, you're working at it and working at it. And... Uh, you know, the, the, the nice thing about movies and stuff like that, too, you can edit it out. So if you have a mistake, you go back, you do it, and poof, you're, you're back in business. Well, it also helped a little bit on this movie with the technology like that is George Lucas was an executive producer of the film. So he had come in and kind of helped Jim with different special effects because of all the Star Wars movies and making miniatures and even at the time the green screen effects that were used. Some of the animatronics, but Jim was already, I think, ahead of George with animatronics at the time. Especially there was a puppet, they called him Gargantuan because he was over 15 feet tall, made of metal. Now... And he had to be on a rod 
you wouldn't see his the big controlling rod through his back because it was so big. But his, and he was only controlled by two people, one who did all his movements and because he didn't, his facial features didn't change. He just had needed arm and leg movement. And one to operate the hydraulic in the back to move him forward and back. But he weighed a ton. And that's just one puppet. There was another puppet that he weighed over 200 pounds. And he was a cost, uh, partially a costume. And he was played by two different people because it was too heavy for one person to wear all the time. So two people had to coordinate saying, okay, this is how his head moves when he's sad. Or this is, you know, him perking up. Well, you know, the, the other thing that you said about um, Jim Henson being ahead of uh, George Lucas, um, at that time I would definitely agree with you um, because George Lucas was just, um, you know, making his, his way into the first of the Star Wars trilogy and using what was available at the time, and I'm sure that there was a lot of collaboration going on there because that's one thing that you don't see um, with us not being able to see or not uh, them not showing us what's going on behind the scenes is a collaboration that goes on between uh, the creative people when they come up with their ideas and stuff. Why reinvent the wheel when you could give Jim Jim Henson a call or why would he reinvent the wheel when he could rely on George Lucas for some of the stuff that he was doing? Well, yeah, that's today to, um, like you said, you and I are making a movie we're making some goofy movie for sci-fi because we've talked about that because like here let's see what movie we could make that's really stupid and sci-fi will actually buy it if we needed special effects I am not I can use a computer like a normal person John is IT so he knows a lot more about them but neither one of us have ever done I don't know John have you ever done special effects besides audio just basic uh, uh, basic animation on an older computer a couple decades ago uh, but not at the level that they're doing with the, with what they're doing but you're right if you're doing a movie today you know one of your first phone calls depending on your budget is probably going to be uh, Disney into Industrial Light and Magic which was basically uh, George Lucas's special effects company for years and then Disney bought up the whole thing when it bought up the entire Star, Star Wars franchise yeah. or if you want to go to another one you go to Weta which is uh, Jackson Peter Jackson's company okay. that did Lord of the Rings okay and other things so you have and he, that one's more prosthetic. I see Weta would be more prosthetic if you want that. Okay. And then again, you have, um, I think, James Cameron with what he's doing, um, with what he was doing with the... Um, Avatar. Avatar actually designed and developed uh, brand new cameras. And that's what took so long on the production of the first one, um, was using the cameras in the way that they were doing it. Um and I don't know what the specifics are there, but obviously it's uh, um, quite quite the tool. Yeah, and um, Jim Henson's company is still around today. They still do puppetry. They did all of the puppets for Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and they uh, created 
the uh, Baby Yoda for the Disney Plus series. Even though Disney does own, of course, that character, they still went to the Henson Company and said, Hey, we need you to make this baby and we need your style puppeteers to come and puppeteer this creature because we know you are the best at what you do and we need because this is an iconic character we need the best yeah and that's the way you do it you find the best to do what you need to do and and, and quite frankly when you take a look at movie budgets um Years ago, you'd hear what movie budgets were like in the in the seventies and the eighties, and now movie budgets are just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, uh, over like what was like Endgame, uh, Avengers Endgame? I think it was over a billion dollars. I can I can to see that. make because of all the special effects, and not just the actors' salaries, because some of them were getting paid a lot of money. A lot of money, yeah. But you're right, and, and it's not just um, it's it's not just the the, the the special effects. It's look at the number of characters that you have there, and the special effects that comes along with each character. Yeah. So it just it just compounds everything exponentially. Well, there was in Labyrinth the scene in the Goblin King's throne room. There were at least twenty puppets alone. Like sticking out the wall of the walls and in the you know up from the floors, that's twenty people you who have to actually know how to puppet your style yeah. because it's a specialized style that Henson came up with. Not just and there were also four little people in costume as well. Okay. So you add in a baby and David Bowie and you got yourself a party, um, which is weird. Still fun to watch. Just weird. Um, but I think that's the one thing about all of what Jim did is amazing. That he could take a coat and make an iconic character. He could take some latex foam and make it into a creature that you could actually just sit there and talk to the creature even though you know right next to that is the person talking. But you talk to, you look at the puppet. You don't look at the person talking. You look at the puppet like the puppet's a real being. No, absolutely. And and that's that's where the creative genius comes from, is what can you do with the materials that you have to work with? Yeah. And, you know, he's first starting out, so he uses his mother's coat. Um, is, is he makes money and progresses and gets better, so does everything else he's working with. Yeah, but they still go back to the basics of it's they they are still foam rubber puppet. Oh, absolutely. And they're made of molds and there's a extremely talented artist sitting there actually sculpting these things and making them into a creature that looks real. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, wow. Becky. Anyway, so my recommendation this time is go watch the Dark Crystal, Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and Labyrinth. Look at them at not only the stories that they're telling, but all of the amazing artistry that went into these things. 
And of course, go watch The Muppet Show. It's freaking hilarious. If you don't laugh while you watch Alice Cooper dance and sing with puppets, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> go watch Sesame Street, even though it is for little kids. It still will make you want to learn Spanish. Because that's where I learned like a couple words of Spanish was on Sesame Street. Uh, watch all of the Muppet movies. The Great Muppet Caper. My, one of my favorite Muppet movies of that. Of those characters. What do you? Th what are your last thoughts, John? Uh, I would agree with you. I think, um, you know, if nothing else, um, you're taking a look at, at movies that just aren't cult classics or quite entertaining. And if you have young kids um, or teenagers that are into, into fantasy, and there seems to be a lot of that in, in young adult books and stuff like that, introduce them to some of the classics. It, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah, uh, like you said, classic things, even other movies, other genres. If there's a remake today, have them go back and watch the original. See that it was just as good, probably better, than the remake today. There, I, there are stirrings that there will be a sequel to Labyrinth, but... I don't know how they're going to do that, being as um, David Bowie has passed away um, a couple years ago of cancer. And trying to replace him would be damn near impossible for me. Anyway, there are some very charismatic, talented singers out there who are actors who could play the part, but I don't know. That's a... Another discussion for another time. Okay, tweet at us, please, at Ravens Nevermind, and give your opinion. Do you like the Muppets? Do you like Dark Crystal Labyrinth? What are your opinions on them? Please be polite. Do not argue with others because that's not nice. Don't be that person. So, go read a book or listen to one on audio. Watch a movie. Listen to your favorite band. Do all of those things. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>